Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I want to just begin by noting something in passing before we get into the substance of what Paul's talking about here, which is just to take a step back and think what it shows us about Paul in terms of his prayer life. I find it incredibly challenging when I think about Paul's prayerfulness for the churches. He often tells them when he opens his letters that he's praying for them and speaks about his constant prayer on their behalf. And it's profoundly challenging for us because God's call for us as his people is to be, first and foremost, people of prayer, engaged with his work in the world through prayer and praying for your church. Do you pray for your church? Do you pray for its work in this city? Is it a high concern when you think about uh, coming to God in prayer? Do you pray at all, I wonder? I'm not sure that all of us feel that we have developed a prayer life at all. But Paul prays. He prays constantly. He prays without ceasing. It's there, isn't it? In the beginning, he says, how, how constant his prayer is. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. It couldn't be more emphatic. This guy is constantly in prayer for these people. and it, it's in, The reason why I find it challenging is just on a couple of levels. One is that it just reveals to us the love he has for the church. I think your prayer is probably the, the truest sign of your love for others. Your prayer for them. And this is one of the reasons why we need to make it our aim to be prayerful on behalf of of the church and of God's people. But the other reason why it's so challenging is because it shows that his first concern is always for the glory of Jesus Christ. The reason why I say that is because there are basically two ways you can go about building churches. One of them you can think of as a man-centered approach that we have our abilities, gifts, and techniques to draw people together into a crowd or a community and enjoy something that might resemble church life. But if it's built purely on the effort of man, I doubt very much that that is a real church. The other way is to recognize that the church is something supernatural, that God alone calls people from all kinds of backgrounds and origins to himself in the body of Christ and forms them into this community that loves him and wants to make him known in the world. And that is a supernatural feat of God. The reason Paul found himself on his knees in prayer was because fundamentally he knew that there is no other way that the church can be built. It has to be God. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. It has to be something supernatural from beginning to end. 
We cooperate with God. We obey God. We're part of the story that he's unfolding in the world and building his church. Paul knew that better than anyone. He laid down his whole life for this cause. But we must call out to him to do it. Now, the reason why I want us to focus upon this prayer today, though, is to think about the content of what he's talking about when he talks about his prayer life. He reveals to us what matters in church life by the ways that he prays for the churches and the things that he gives thanks for. Do you understand the logic of what I'm saying there? If you go home today and say, look, give thanks for how wonderful the cake was or um, how delicious the coffee is or how much uh, someone made you laugh at church, those are the things that you think are important in church life. So when you give thanks to God for certain aspects of the church, you're saying, you're saying those are the most important things in church. And Paul's opening up to us what is most important to him, what is top of his mind. The reason why I say that is because as a church, you're always in pursuit of certain things. You can be in pursuit of influence. We're in a big city. It can be tempting to desire that we be an influential church. Some churches have influence and punch above their weight. You can be desiring to pursue growth as the one thing that you want to see above all. Just growth as more and more people are joined. Or you can be desiring to see um, some churches become obsessed with, with buildings. There are all kinds of things that churches run after and pursue. But if we want to get back to what Jesus' heart is for his church, we need to open up the things that Paul prayed for in letters like this. It'll reset our priorities. It resets our focus. It helps us to understand what it is that Christ himself values in his church. And so what I'm asking today, here's the central question that we're coming to. It's quite evident from what we read that Paul's extremely happy about the Philippian church. I mean, it's like if, if you think of the different churches Paul planted as his children, he's definitely got his favorite kid. It's the Philippian church. They're for reasons that will become plain as we open up what he's saying here. They're an extraordinary church, the one that we ought to be emulating. So here's the central question that I'm asking this morning. What is it that he was happy about? What is it that made his heart sing? What was it that when he got on his knees and thought about this church, as he seems to do constantly, gave birth to thanksgiving and delight and joy? And I think the answer can be summed up in one phrase. It's in verse 5 where he says, because, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I don't think it's immediately apparent what that means. And we will, it's my job today, just open up to you what that expression means. But the whole of the, the, the prayer that we read was basically an unfolding of that expression. The challenge with Paul is that sometimes his ideas are convoluted. So you may not realize this, or you won't, I'm pretty sure you won't realize this, but from verse 3 to verse 8, the chunk of the paragraph we read, in the original that Paul wrote, that was just one long sentence. We don't write like this these days. A couple hundred years ago, some authors used to write like that, a long sentence with many sub-clauses and clauses beneath clauses and ideas all entangled. And that's how Paul used to write. So when we're kind of trying to understand what is it that Paul's really thanking God for, I think you've got to fix in your mind the main idea is this. 
your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, which in modern terminology we describe as being a gospel-centered church. And then my job is to help you understand the strands of what that means. So you imagine this sentence is like a big bowl of spaghetti. We're going to be picking out one strand at a time, and I think there are basically three main elements to what this means, that they were a gospel-centered church. Now, I want to underline for you how vital it is to recognize that the gospel is a binding power for the community of God. Every community on earth, every movement, every nation is bound by certain narratives and storylines. You heard of the author Yuval Harari, who wrote this best-selling book, Sapiens, about the history of humankind. His theory is that what makes humans distinct from every other creature on the planet, from the baboons to the ants to whatever else, is that we have stories, he calls them fictions, that draw us together around certain storylines. So all the way from you know, Greek philosophers through to Nazi ideology through to um, the idea of the British Empire right down to just day-to-day storylines that we buy into and believe in. This is what makes us unique. This is why humankind moves together in movements and nations and people groups and communities. We buy into storylines. Now, I disagree with Harari on one point. He says they're all fictions. He says every one of them is just a, a fiction invented by men to bring people together. Of course, we disagree with that. When we talk about the gospel as the central storyline, the central narrative that brings the church together into a powerful, dynamic community, we're talking about events that took place. A baby that was born. A life that was lived. A perfect life. Miracles that took place before eyewitnesses. A brutal and bloody death on the cross. A resurrection three days later when the tomb was empty and then he began appearing to individuals. And then those eyewitnesses spreading the story into the world. This is no fiction, but it is a story and it binds God's people together. It's the central thing that brings us together. And here's the main thing we've got to grasp. If the church isn't bound around the gospel, you see there are all kinds of substitutes that bring churches together. Some churches are bound around being cool. You wouldn't believe it coming in here this morning, would you? (laughs) Some churches are bound around uh, the popularity of the pastor. Ditto. Some churches churches are are bound around the quality of the production, the music, whether it's at the one end, you know, high choral, high church choral music and organs and all the rest of it, right through to the kind of gospel choirs and then the rock bands that you see in Every expression across London this morning, you can find groups of people who are flooding into church buildings because they love the music. And then all kinds of other things. Social justice is a big one. The idea that we want to bring justice in this world, which of course is a wonderful thing, but it's not the central message. It's not the central narrative. This church, the Philippian church, is a gospel-centered church. That's what Paul delights in. That's what we want to build here. I want to show you three things then that come out, like the strands of spaghetti that come out of this long sentence and and, uh, indicate that they're a gospel-centered church. Excuse me, my voice. Obviously, I've got a bit of a cold, so I'll be somewhat restrained this morning. The first is this. That in a gospel-centered church, you're aware that Jesus himself 
is transforming you. I think that the desire to change is probably one of the most strongly held desires in the hearts of humankind. And we are, you see it evidenced all around us. Change is big business. There are all kinds of change consultants, people who can change whole organizations right down to people whose whole job it is, is to be employed by you to change your life. Whether to give you slightly bigger biceps or to help you order your priorities or whatever. Change is huge business. I want to quote a well-known author, Jeremy Moses, who (laughs) wrote on this subject this week in um, his article for that um, online magazine, Salt. He said, uh, he describes how he was walking through Liverpool Station and was struck in the bookshop by all the self-help books available. He says, there were offers of assistance on how to form good habits, how to avoid procrastination, how to succeed in my career, he needed that one. How to think slower. I'm only joking. I'm sorry, I'm always so mean to Jeremy, aren't I? <laughs> I need to stop this. How to think slower and even how to unleash the power within, which is particularly impressive as I didn't realize there was any power there in the first place. And he goes on and says, yet today, the opportunities, at least for the most privileged, have grown enormously and so have our ambitions. We feel a growing pressure to succeed, become a better, more rounded person and change the world and all at the same time. And with these sky-high ambitions, we feel increased pressure to become an idealized version of ourselves, to become worthy of the title History Makers. Now, when Paul was writing to the church in Philippi, he writes to them as people who are being transformed. So they're getting the thing which human hearts want, this, this desire for change. But the thing we must underline today is that gospel transformation is absolutely unique among all the ways on offer today for changing your life. Let me put it to you in these terms, thinking negatively. On the one hand, the way the gospel changes you is, not, is never heavy. Church should never be a heavy place where people feel heavy in church and they feel overwhelmed by the weight of expectation and the culture of the pursuit of godliness. I think that there are places and atmospheres that create that tension in your heart. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine some years ago who'd been raised in a kind of what you might describe as a disadvantaged background. He'd come in a single-parent home with very little possessions, and he recognized that in the deficiencies of his upbringing, he had certain character flaws. He struggled with self-discipline. He struggled with um, meeting his commitments. He was a wonderfully personable and friendly guy, but he looked inside and said, there are things about my life I wish were different. And he came to me one day and said that his plan was that he felt he should join the military because he felt that that would give him the structure, the discipline, and the power to change his life and to become the man he wanted to be. And of course, I wanted to challenge him and did so there and then on the spot that it's only ever a temporary solution to join an organization like the military, which you can think of as this heavy, top-down approach to changing your life. It's only ever temporary. Sure, it can give you a sense of structure. You have to get up at the crack of dawn. You have to have your boots polished or the drill sergeant's going to shout at you. But so often, as it's been revealed over time, as men leave those organizations, their lives crumble and the structures around them disappear because the, the heart was never changed. 
A gospel-centered church is not a church that should be heavy. I used to make this mistake a lot when I was a younger kid. I, I think I was fairly zealous for God as, as in my early teens and wanted to try and help my friends grow in their zeal for God as well. So one of the things I did was get a few of my friends together in morning breaks every day at school, and we'd pray together. And one, part of what we were trying to do, and what I was trying to do, was discipleship in the sense that I, want, I wanted us all to be growing in our, in our prayer lives personally and our reading of the Bible. And here's how it used to, 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 um, to uh, play out. We used to sit down at the beginning of the break before we get into prayer, and I used to ask everyone, so how's your Bible reading going and how's your prayer life going? And of course, invariably, they'd be like, oh, I missed it today. And then I'd just do this massive eye roll and be like, try harder next time type thing. I think as a, in those days, I didn't understand how God's grace works in our lives to bring transformation. I didn't understand how gospel brings transformation. What I was going for was the heavy approach. If I make you feel guilty enough, then eventually you're going to crack and crumble and then be rebuilt as this man of God. The irony was, I wasn't doing that stuff either. It's all just coming from a place of hypocrisy. It's so often is the case in a religious, heavy atmosphere. The gospel, a gospel-centered church doesn't bring about change in that heavy way. But neither does it bring about change through being kind of easygoing. The church should never be heavy, but neither is it totally easygoing, kind of whitewashing the things in your life which you know are displeasing to the living God. The culture we're in these days is all about affirming what you believe is right for you. There's never any challenge, unless you're intolerant of others, of course. But church isn't like that. I would say, I wouldn't put it stronger, I'd just say that that mentality, that whole approach is fundamentally at odds with what it means to be part of God's people. Because to become part of God's people is to surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. And if he's Lord of your life, he alone determines what is right and wrong. So how can it be the case that in church we neither want to pursue heaviness, nor are we going to be an all-accepting, easygoing bunch who just affirm people where they are? The answer is that fundamentally, the change which God begins to operate in our lives when we're part of a gospel-centered church is a supernatural work of God. He is at work in us unraveling the old self and rebuilding something in the image of Jesus Christ. You know that that is part of the very heart of the promise of the gospel. Back in the Old Testament, long before Jesus had come, before the gospel story had taken place, before he'd, been, he'd died on our behalf, before he'd been resurrected to give us new life, there was this promise back in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 31 where God has said, I'm going to bring about a new covenant with you a new agreement, a new way of dealing with you as my people. And he put it like this, I'll put my law within them, I'll write it on their hearts. Up to then, they'd been hearing the law in their ears, but it had been left them unchanged. And he says, I'm going to begin to change you from the inside out. He says, and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. So you can picture me. In the teacher's office, in the school um, classroom, every break, telling, 
asking my friends, have you read the Bible? That's me going, know the Lord, know the Lord. Little realizing that I barely knew him myself. He says, no longer is this going to be the way things play out. He says, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And then in the New Testament, when Paul's describing how it is that under the gospel we start to live these new lives, he says, this has happened, and he puts it like this. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, so you thought you could never change, You thought that the problems in your life were insurmountable problems. There was no way out. You were bound. You were doomed to a life of making the same mistakes again and again. You who were once slaves of sin, he says, have become, have been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. And he puts the reason like this, that you become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That God has rewired you from the inside that no longer do you even take pleasure in the things that you used to take pleasure in. Now you want to pursue Jesus. That's not to say that we, we don't experience the tension in our hearts between split desires, being double-minded as James puts it. But fundamentally, to be a Christian is to have experienced that reorientation of your, your basic desires in life. And if that reorientation hasn't taken place, then you are not a Christian. That's what it means, the miracle of new birth. It's what it means that Christ has caused us to be born again and to receive new hearts that come from him. None of us are perfect, but all of us who know Jesus now have a reorientation. We know which way we want to go, and it begins to change us from the inside out. Jesus does it in very ordinary ways. Changes us week after week through things like the preaching of God's word, which is God's means of transforming us. Through conversations that you have with one another when you challenge each other and help each other to see the sin in one another's lives. Through breaking of bread when we contemplate the death of Christ on our behalf. But through it all, the work of the Holy Spirit is infused in everything we do. It's what it means to be a gospel-centered people. And it comes through, particularly in verse 6 here. I'm sure of this, that he who began a work, a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be partners in the gospel? It means that Jesus is transforming you personally. You're growing in holiness. Do you feel that power within? That dynamic for change? You're aware of God's great power in your life, helping you to overcome sin, helping you to be more like Jesus. If you're not, then the Lord Jesus wants to invite you to experience it. It's the first step in becoming a Christian. Saying, God, I've come to the end of myself, my own efforts. I'm so frustrated with the life I've lived. I feel guilty and ashamed. God, would you forgive me and would you change me? If you've never prayed that prayer, you must do so. The Lord Jesus wants to bring his transforming power into your life and into your heart. It's the first mark of a gospel-centered church. Here's a second one. That you find that you're drawn to one another in deep love and affection. 
throughout this prayer and elsewhere also in the letter and all through the New Testament, Paul uses this word, fellowship. And it's there actually in verse 5. You can't see it in this version because it's translated differently, but here how it goes. Verse 5, because of your partnership, fellowship, sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, you may not realize it, but it's one of the most important words in, in the New Testament. It's this word koinonia which is usually translated fellowship, which is probably one uniquely used among Christians. I don't know if I've ever heard the word fellowship outside of the church, except one example I'm going to tell you in a minute. It's a uniquely Christian word. You don't go to, to, to work and then say during coffee break, should we have some fellowship time, guys? <laughs> well, you want to go for a beer after work, and you're like, let's go fellowship down the pub. It's a uniquely Christian word, and for Christians who know this word, some of you grown up in church, it calls to mind a certain way of interacting. It calls to mind polite chat over cups of tea, usually green crockery, because every church in the UK at one point had this particular brand of green crockery called barrel crockery. If you've grown up in church, you've definitely had a cup of tea out of barrel crockery. There's no question of that matter. Fellowship was that kind of that, that, that 20 minutes after the church service had finished while you quickly said hello to people around you and then scurried home for your roast dinner. At its worst. But in the New Testament, this word fellowship is one of the most important words because it depicts something much bigger, something much more powerful about God's binding of us to one another and to himself in an extraordinary way. It's very hard to fully explain because the word's used in so many different ways, but I found this helpful in one of the books I was reading about this. Um, this little story that was related of a, a theologian called Broughton Knox. I love that name, Broughton Knox. It's unique and powerful. And he, um, <laughs> he, he tells how he was a chaplain on a ship in the run-up to D-Day, in the Second World War. And he said that on that ship, no one thought of his own interests, but only how he could help his shipmates in their commonly shared tasks. There was a profound unity on board. And he put it like this, I remember noting in my mind how I had never been happier. He said, after the invasion returned to England, everyone noticed a difference in the atmosphere on the ship. It was still friendly because it was a well-run ship. A lot of churches... They're friendly because they're well-run. But he said, several of the sailors, sensing the difference, asked the young chaplain why things had changed. And Knox reflected, the answer was quite simple. During those months that preceded and followed D-Day, our thoughts had a minimum of self-centeredness in them. We gave ourselves to our shared activity and objective. Once the undertaking was over, we reverted to our own purposes as we do normally. We are, without God's power at work in us, we're basically selfish people. But the New Testament church had experienced something profoundly life-altering in what they described as fellowship, this turning of the heart outwards towards one another and towards God. Another word, the only other occasion I can think of where this word is used outside of a Christian context is in Lord of the Rings, right? Some of you thought of that, right? (laughs) Though Tolkien was a Christian. So it still counts. Um, 
But in that first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, or first film for any of you who can't read, in that first, <laughs> in that first episode of the trilogy, the reason why it's called The Fellowship of the Ring is because there are nine, nine different characters, four hobbits, um, Think about my wife with hairy feet. There you go. Um, four hobbits, four, uh, no, uh, two men, one dwarf, one wizard, and one elf. Thank you. You've watched the movie, haven't you? And uh, the, the extraordinary thing about them is obviously they're all from very different backgrounds, and they naturally have... Uh, something close to hatred towards one another's species, particularly between the elves and the dwarves. The elves love nature, they live in the woods, and you know, the elves in modern-day equivalent are the kind of landed gentry who go out in their, in their tweed and shoot and you know, go to private schools and all the rest of it. And then there's the dwarves who live in the mountain underground and are gruff, bearded creatures who swing axes and mine for treasure. And they're kind of like your Welsh steel workers. And you put these two guys together and they, they despise each other to begin with. But the whole that, of that first book, the, the, as the story unfolds, you see the binding of hearts around a common purpose. So that even the elf and the dwarf, Legolas and Gimli, grow to love one another in a deep way. They become inseparable. Now, when Paul uses the word partnership here, because of your partnership, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, there are a couple of things you need to understand about what he's describing there in church life. The first is that it's something that is supernatural, as I've already been saying about the church. The reason why I say that is because on more than one occasion in the New Testament, it's described as something the Holy Spirit brings about. Just over the page in chapter 2, verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, it's the same word, just translated differently. Any koinonia, any fellowship in the Spirit. And then he goes on to explain what should be true of them if there is this koinonia in the Spirit. At the end, you'll, if you went to a, a Church of England school, one of the things that you will have heard every day in assembly was the grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, same word, of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What's meant there is that this powerful binding force, this fellowship, this community, is something that only the Holy Spirit can bring about among his people through the power of the gospel. Your partnership, your fellowship in the gospel. And what it expresses is the deepest possible kind of bond between men. It spills out in the prayer as Paul describes what he's thankful for. He's thankful for their partnership, their fellowship in the gospel. And then he puts it in ways like this, verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you all. Paul was a feeler. I'm not sure how he would have come out on a Myers-Briggs, but I think feeling would have come out pretty strongly for him. And he, he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers, there's the word again, fellowshippers with me of grace. Then he says it again in verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. One of the reasons why we no longer use the King James Version of the Bible is because it's 
in their literal effort to translate that, they wrote, with the bowels of Christ Jesus. I yearn for you all with the bowels of Christ Jesus. Because in the Greek, when they talked about affection, emotion, they talked about it as coming from the gut. They meant like the liver and the lungs and the heart particularly. Because you know when you feel a swelling love, you do feel it down there, don't you? Apparently there are actually nerves attached between your stomach and your brain, which is why you get flutter when you're going to an interview or whatever, or meeting up with that guy you've been wanting to meet for ages or whatever. And Paul says, I yearn for you all with this bond, the affection, the bowels, the gut of Jesus Christ. That's what fellowship is. Now, what this means and implies for us as a gospel, wanting to be a gospel-centered church is that you cannot enjoy fellowship and be individualistic. Coming in and leaving is not the way Jesus wanted us to enjoy church because church is a horizontal experience as much as it is vertical. We don't only commune with God, we commune with one another. But it also means that church can't just be bound together as other groups in the world are bound together, like clubs and societies, which usually are bound around a kind of homogeneity. I don't know how to say that. (laughs) They have things in common. And what what Paul's describing here is something fundamental powerfully the work of God and that's centered around the gospel. Only the gospel brings people from all kinds of backgrounds and nations. The, the gentry and the Welsh miners and all of them together in one church where they love each other with this deep affection. I think the gospel has a unique power to do that and a gospel-centered church should reflect that. And the reason why I say that is because you come back to what the gospel message actually is. Think about what, how you define the gospel. One of my favorite definitions comes from um, Tim Keller, who put it like this. I'm more sinful than I ever imagined, but I'm more loved than I ever did hope. Now, what does that do when you accept those two propositions in the gospel message? On the one hand, it humbles you to the ground. So that all the pride that keeps us apart from each other is, is demolished. On the other hand, it builds us up with the, the most deeply felt security in God's love. I'm more sinful than I ever imagined, but I'm also more loved than I ever did hope. Most of us can't love other people because we're insecure. We want to be loved. We want to suck. And so we find it hard among groups of people to give love. This is the fundamental problem when we give in to Shyness, not just as a trait of being an introvert, but as turning in on ourselves. And Jesus says, if I love you, you can love one another. If you feel secure in my love, you can live a life that's outward towards other people in generosity of heart and affection. This is something that uniquely the gospel brings about and for which Paul's giving thanks because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Partly it's about their inner transformation and holiness, but then it's about this binding power as they're joined together in love as a church. Let me bring you to the last thing that's true of a gospel-centered church. You're compelled to live a life that's in pursuit of and furtherance of the mission of Jesus in the world. If this fellowship, this partnership 
stops at just change, inward change and loving each other, then it's not enough. If all we do is change on the inside and we grow more holy, then we'll just turn inwards. And if, all we, if, if we then add to it being able to love one another, we'll also forget the needs of the world. But the gospel, partnership in the gospel, turns the church outwards and turns them into a missions organization. Now, I want to show you just three highly practical ways that the Philippian church partnered in the gospel in this way, fellowshiped in the gospel in terms of outward-looking mission, how their fellowship was expressed. The first is this, through financial support. Paul talks about this church three times, to my knowledge, in the New Testament for their generosity. Once is in the end of this letter, chapter 4, verse 15. He says, And you Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership, into fellowship, there it is again, with me, in giving and receiving, except you only. The partnership in the gospel is quite evidently their desire to keep supporting Paul financially. 2 Corinthians 8. It's on page 1689 if you want to just quickly turn. 2 Corinthians 8, he says, he's writing to a different church here. Remember, a church in Corinth. But he says to them, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Where was Philippi? In Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What an amazing church. They were actually a very poor church. They'd experienced affliction, whether it was through economic conditions or famine or whatever, or whether it was just that the Christians themselves had become exiles within their community and therefore were struggling, their businesses were struggling, whatever. For whatever reasons, these Christians were not well off, but they wanted to give to Paul. So much so that Paul can use them as an example to provoke other churches like Corinth, which were a little bit mean. Over in Romans 15, just turn back a few pages to the book of Romans, chapter 15. Verse 26, he talks about them again. He says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, For if the Gentiles have come to share, there's that same word, fellowship, have come to fellowship in their spiritual blessings, the gospel, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So what Paul helps us to understand here is that when people experience the transforming power of the gospel and their lives are turned outward, one of the first evidences of their passion for the mission of Jesus Christ is generosity. Sharing the gospel, heart poured out in generosity. That generosity was obviously for Paul himself, supporting him on his missionary journeys. But it was also generosity towards the Jerusalem church, which happened to be even poorer than them. And they want to help them out. They want to love them. They want to lavish 
wealth upon them. Here's a second practical way that they were engaged in mission and fellowshipping in the gospel. It was through loving Paul. Back in Philippians 1 where we began. It's right for me to feel this way about you, he says in verse 7, because I hold you in my heart for you're all partakers, fellowshippers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In his imprisonment. What does loving Paul have to do with mission? Just this. That the way that Jesus has formed his body, the church, is that he's distributed different gifts to different people. And for some, they have the gift of frontline mission in the way that Paul was. And for others, their gift is in loving and supporting those people. Paul's ministry was made stronger because this church loved him. Paul carried on because this church loved him. Paul felt like he could face other days in prison and ministering among the soldiers who were his guards because he, he knew that there was a church that loved him as well as his Lord and Savior, Jesus. You can think about it like this. that I know very little about sport, but one thing I understand about football is that if you have a star striker at the front, then a very good midfielder, while he may occasionally score goals, also understands that his job is to support that man up front. And Paul felt that weight of support, the team behind him, the Philippian church, who loved him even in his imprisonment. The temptation always was to abandon a guy like this because you're guilty by association. He's in prison. Next thing is we get imprisoned. Think about it also like this. Think about an axe. Again, I know very little about chopping wood. But one thing I understand about axes is that they need two qualities. One is they need a very sharp edge. As the Bible says, you never waste time sharpening the axe. They need a sharper edge. You can think about, in terms of mission to the, to the, the world as it was then, Paul was the sharpest of the sharp. He was frontline pioneering missionary. But an axe is only effective if it's also weighted correctly. Not so heavy that you can't swing it, nor so light that it doesn't give impact to that sharp edge. And a well-weighted axe is like the people coming behind Paul in support and love and affirmation of his ministry. What does this mean practically? Just that for, for many of us, the most effective thing we will ever do in ministry is loving and supporting other people who are more fruitful than we are. I have friends who are on the mission field, and I'm challenged by this. How we can love and support through email and prayers and encouragements. This church wanted nothing more than to see Jesus glorified in the world, but they knew practically that that meant getting behind Paul, Jesus' servant. Here's the last way that they were compelled in mission and fellowship to mission. It was through themselves engaging with sharing the gospel I think that's evident again in verse 7 where he says that you are partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now despite what I've just said, you're not off the hook. Just because you think, yeah, my job is to pray for that guy (laughs) doesn't mean that we're not as Christians called to also be engaged in frontline mission wherever you are whether it's just with your family, whether it's in your workplace, or whether God may be stirring up something more radical in terms of your 
journeying to other places or whatever. What we all ought to have in common if we are partakers in the gospel, which is where we began, is that we have a concern for the triumph of truth in the marketplace of ideas. He uses these two words. On the one hand, defense. Do you remember that challenging verse in 1 Peter 3 where he says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter's expectation, it seems to be Paul's also, was that every Christian in the church, once they reach a certain level of maturity and knowledge in their faith, ought to be able to hold their own in explaining and defending the the core tenets of what our faith is about. Can you explain the gospel to another person? Can you also give justification for why you think it is true and not merely a fairy tale? There's a challenge there, isn't there? The Philippian church apparently could do so. Defense and confirmation. All of it built on the passionate conviction that the gospel is exclusively true. Even just this week when we get together on Wednesday night, this is what we're trying to do. I'm hoping that Jesus is rejoicing in our effort to engage in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I want us all to be thanking God for Jeremy and his courage and being willing to bear his heart, but also to bring the power of his mind to bear on the issues that he's going to be talking about on Wednesday night. Friends, let me just bring it to a conclusion. We want to be a gospel-centered church, don't we? I wonder if we were receiving a letter from Paul to the Gratians, whatever we're called, the Londinians, whatever. (laughs) Would he say thank you to God that we're partakers in the gospel? It means that God will be changing us in terms of our holiness. It means that God will be drawing us together in deeper love and community. And it means that we'll be a church that is concerned with the mission of Jesus Christ in the world. And those things are evidently on display. We can give thanks. I'm sure that some of you actually are not Christians here. And I think it's probably quite likely that at least some of what I've said provokes something of a, a desire in you. You would want something of this experience in your life. Whether it's the power to change in yourself and to become the person you know you were made to be rather than the frustration you feel with yourself on a daily basis. Whether it's wanting to belong to a people where you experience love and community, this fellowship that goes deeper than politeness, it is real. And whether it's also possibly the desire to be part of a movement that is changing the world, to have purpose, you may wake up and wonder what your life is actually about, what it's for, and recognize in your most honest moments that the things you're living for and the things that you're building may no, never last. And question the purpose of your life. A gospel-centered church is full of people who feel a deep conviction about their purpose, why they're here on this planet. And Jesus 
very simply says you can be part of this. You can be part of it, he says. Jesus called everyone everywhere to become his followers. And I want to invite you to do it. You can do it right now. I would love to speak with you. I'll be here at the front afterwards. We'll pray with you. We'll talk with you. We'll do whatever you want. If you just have questions, just come and bring your questions. We want to help people to find Jesus for the first time. Most of us in this room did that at one point. Our hearts were beating. We were nervous, sweating. But we made that decision and we never looked back. Never regretted. If you want to, come and speak with me. It would be my sincere delight to talk and to pray with you. And if you just have questions, that's fine also. Brothers, sisters, Christians, let's stand together and pray, shall we? Jesus, we we want to give you thanks that the gospel has done an extraordinary thing, not only in our hearts, not only in this community, but across the world. I feel a thrill when I think about the millions of people worldwide who are worshipping you, bringing themselves before you in adoration and saying, Jesus, you are worthy. Lord, we want your gospel, we want your truth to be so compelling and central to everything we do that, Lord, your power will be at work in us to change us from the inside out. Your power will be at work in us to help us to love each other like we've never loved before. And your power is going to make us have an impact in this city, seeing friends and relatives come to know you. We give you thanks that you've been doing this work among us already. But God, we pray, accelerate and increase it for the glory of your Son. That London will experience the gospel, not only through us, but through every gospel-centered church in this, in this city. But Lord, I pray also that maybe there's people here who feel the seed of a, a new passion, a new energy being birthed in them for a new direction in life whether to become a Christian for the first time or as Christians to lay down their life as Paul did to make you known in this world. Give us, Lord, the power of Jesus to live for you in his precious name. Amen. Amen.